The Jewish exiles in Babylon listened to false prophets who said that they should expect an imminent return to their homeland. Jeremiah's letter confirms their exile will extend over a considerable length of time, at least 70 years. Jeremiah likely surprises his audience by encouraging them to embrace their time in Babylon as God's time and to nurture the hope that perhaps their children or children's children might one day be allowed to return home and rebuild their lives in the promised land. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss this letter and the hope that is in it. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me as always is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Just like a bad penny, always turning up (laughs) when it's time for a podcast. Well, I was chatting with your wife, and uh, I said how you and I have been like ships passing in the night. That's right. We've been uh, busy. Well, both you and I the last couple weeks, so it's good to be with you. I'm glad to be with you too, Bruce. Well, we had an exceptional day of worship on Sunday. I thought it was just wonderful, and I thought Pastor Steve did a great job on the sermon. He did a great job. We had wonderful music. The kids were in worship. Um, Yeah. A couple of services. It was really nice. Well, we even, this may be shocking to our audience, but the Presbyterians actually were clapping. That's right. And and, in the... 1045 service, they were saying amen. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Gee. Life. Yes. Among God's chosen frozen. (laughs) Well, we had the uh, Jeremiah text, uh, very familiar text to a lot of us. From Jeremiah chapter 29, probably the most famous verse in all of the book of Jeremiah. And Pastor Steve made a change at the last minute, decided he didn't want to read all those tough names, but... You are going to take take that on. This is a challenge to read all the tough names at the beginning of Jeremiah 29. Well, you're a good Hebrew scholar, so I think you can do it. I'll do my best. Why don't I read verses 1 through 9, and if you read verses 10 through 14. So you have the privilege. I, I get the, uh, the main. The famous verse. The famous verse, yeah. All right. Well, here it is as we begin uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisha, son of Shaphan, and to Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. 
Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And picking up on uh, verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So a remarkable story, a remarkable verse, and a well-loved verse. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we say that it's um, famous, but mm-hmm. it really means a lot to a lot of people. It was, and probably remains the uh, life verse of our older daughter, in fact, we were just with them out in Texas, and she was arranging to have a quilt made of all of these uh, T-shirts and uniforms she'd worn it in the Air Force. And among them was this T-shirt I'd never seen before. It was a T-shirt that her then fiance, now our son-in-law, had prepared for her. It had a, her squadron patch from her pilot training, and then underneath that, it had Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. Uh, that he had said it meant so much to her that he was going to make sure that she always was able to wear that as she's flying jets for the uh, U.S. Air Force. Mm-hmm. So something that means a lot. But but the context is not well understood by even people for whom this is a beloved verse. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to do a little digging into the context of that. So it was really a remarkable period. King Jehoiakim, who's mentioned in the opening verses of this chapter, he only ruled in Jerusalem for three months. Mm. And it was this remarkable rapid succession where the situation just collapsed for this group of people living in Judah and in Jerusalem, the capital city. Uh, First, they had desert raiders that were poaching towns on the eastern provinces of Judah. And then to the west, you had their ally, which was Egypt, And Egypt was at the point where they were not able to come to the aid of other countries, let alone of themselves. They were really, really diminished. And then uh, the king on the throne in Jerusalem dies, King Jehoiakim. And then we have his son taking over from Jehoiakim. And he really is not up to the task that's before him immediately, which is the Babylonian army is already on the march. It's coming from the north. The city is surrounded and falls pretty rapidly because the young king is just not with the task. He knows he doesn't have the troops, so he surrenders. Mm. And that means that thousands of people are taken captive and taken away. In fact, uh, why don't you read that sure. as it comes to us in the Second Kings? Yes, this is Second Kings uh, chapter 24, 8 through 17. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta. Right. (laughs) And daughter of 
Elaine, um, L. Nathan, mm-hmm. L. Nathan, and she was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner, as the Lord had declared. Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temples of the Lord, or from the temple of the Lord, and from the royal place, and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiah's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So really a a cataclysmic change in, in population cataclysmic change for the city and for the community. Mm. Um, And it probably takes five months for that group of people to be carried in all the way uh, through the trade routes to Babylon, to New City. Mm. So maybe two years have passed since the disasters began, the string of disasters. They get there, and what next? What's going to be the next thing? Probably they're all thinking... This can't last. This this can't be the way the rest of our lives will be. Mm. You know, uh, another two weeks to flatten the curve and we'll be back home. Right. Everything will go back to normal. Yes. And those are the people that received this letter from Jeremiah. Mm. Uh, so uh, an encouraging verse, but it's a verse that says you have to let go of what you expected your life to be. Mm. And then you're ready to receive God's plan for your life. That's a, that's a lot of context to that verse that we find so comforting. Yeah, but I th- think if we know the context, it makes it even more comforting. Mm-hmm. You know, because all of us are on plan B. None of us gets out of life on plan A. That's right? for sure. So we're on plan B or C or D. Or, and when we're at that point, when our original hopes and dreams have had to change, that's when the comfort is God has something good in store for us. Mm. God really does love us. It is a wonderful promise. It is. You, you think of that, uh, in all things, God's working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And, and God really is. We just have to be ready to receive things that happen in our life that are unexpected as blessings. All of this, for those people in, in exile, they had to learn to be content. 
Exactly. And Paul says a lot about what it is to be content in a couple of his letters to his churches, um, the first being um, 2 Corinthians. I'll read that. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, 23 through 33. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all my churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window in the city wall to escape from him. It's amazing all the things he endured. And we only have this list because uh, what was going on in Corinth was uh, people are saying, ah, Paul's not that important. And, and Paul says, look, <laughs> I've been through a lot, boys and girls. Let me tell you about that. Yeah, he's, yeah. So he's almost a little annoyed, but then you hear all this. And my goodness. It's a good review of all of those beatings and the, just the tough time he had. So knowing all that, that that's kind of the, the litany, the description, the, all the things he went through. Mm-hmm. Then we have this marvelous example of, Paul saying, I've gotten through it and I've learned to be content. And yeah. this is from Philippians chapter 4, a different type of letter where Paul was really thanking the, the folks at Philippi for helping him so many times. This is uh, Philippians four twelve through 13. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that's the kind of attitude that we want. We want to encourage that in one another. We, um, I guess we all go through tough times. Uh, Usually we don't go through all the same tough times at the same moment, so we're able to uh, be in a a better place and encourage other people who are going through difficult times. But we, we, we want that gift of contentment, that peace that uh, Jesus brings to our lives. This is another verse that's pretty popular with people, right? You know, I have, um, I can do all things through him who strengths, who gives me strength. But um, the, context. the context is, 
look at how much Paul has been through. Yeah, yeah. But you, you see that. Uh, you know, I've known people that have gone through the Great Depression or gone through a war mm. or gone through the loss of a spouse or a child. Um, things are just devastating. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, I've seen uh, many examples of people that are at peace with all of that. You know, the, the bad stuff still hurts, but they proclaim the goodness of God and uh, give witness to that in the way they live their lives. And it's, it inspires me that you know, I want to be like that. I, I want to be somebody where um, folks look at me and say, hey, he's learned to be content mm. and uh, to be able to give the glory to Christ at that moment. Yeah, that's a good thing. Well, you know, uh, each week we do a little piece on archaeology, and I'm sure you took notice that uh, Pastor Steve was uh, showing off his archaeology on Sunday. Yeah, I appreciate the shout-out. Of course, you know, (laughs) this past week, I've been mulling again and again what we did last week, was going over the 70 years and how to get the 70 years of Babylonian exile and different ways to add up those numbers. And what we talked about in our last episode was different ways where you try to look at the numbers and it doesn't add up to 70. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I got to revisit that. I actually have been obsessing on this. I made up this whole handout for my midweek uh, study group. And then after I made it up, I kept on tweaking with it. You know, it's like way out of proportion to what you need to know. But I want to give you three different ways where you can come up with 70 years. Well, Bruce, it's still relevant because... The context is these people are going to have to endure 70 years of exile, so it still fits. It still fits. So the obsession is not lost on us. Well, well, thank you. You're, you're very kind. So last time, I mentioned that there were precisely 70 years between the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C., mm-hmm. and the dedication of the second temple in 516 B.C. So... Uh, that is exactly 70. That's interesting. And that seems to go along with the prophecies, not of Jeremiah, but another prophet in the Bible, uh, the prophet Zechariah. So this is from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 12, and then verse 16. The Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah? which you have been angry with these 70 years. And this is in uh, Zechariah chapter 1. This is in the voice of an angel that's speaking this. Mm. And then in verse 16 it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. So that's definitely pointing to the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple in particular as the fulfillment of those 70 years. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you look at uh, Jeremiah's prophecies, you have uh, mentioned the 70 years in Jeremiah uh, chapter 25. And then we have a mention of um, 70 years in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it seemed to point at different things, not the rebuilding of the temple, but other things. So in Jeremiah 25, it seems like the emphasis is put on how long the Neo-Babylonian Empire will continue to rule the Near East. Uh, So here is... uh, those verses from Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. So very specifically, it's 
the reign of that new Babylonian empire. There had been earlier Babylonian empire. This is the Neo-Babylonian empire that we're dealing with in this part of biblical history. So when did the Neo-Babylonian empire begin? When did it come to power? And it came to power in the Battle of Haran that was won by Babylon in 609 BC. And the fall of the city of Babylon and of the Babylonian empire happens in 539 BC. And when you subtract uh, 609 or subtract 539 from 609, you have exactly 70 years. So that's interesting. So you're not um, altering the timeline at all. You're not doing anything funny with numbers, but you can get 70 years as a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, we're still dealing with the problem of when is a king officially a king? Like, who's the king of England right now? It will be Charles, but he hasn't been... Well, how, coronate his coronation as see this is exactly the problem right so we yeah. have king charles iii everybody knows he's the king yeah of uh, um england and scotland and wales and all the other yeah. uh, territories and all that of the united kingdom yet he hasn't been crowned he hasn't been coronated he hasn't mm-hmm. gone through that official ceremony that will happen this spring mm-hmm. so you have the same problem with ancient kings as well when does their reign begin mm. Does it begin when they take power or when there's a ceremony? Maybe there's a ceremony tied to a particular time of the year and so that. So all the dates for all these ancient kings, you have to say, well, is that six years or six months before, six months afterwards? Does that mean a change of the calendar date and all those kind of things? But you don't have to change anything to get, we know when the fall of uh, Haran happened. We know when the fall of Babylon or the siege of Haran happened. When We know when the fall of Babylon happened and there's 70 years between those two. Seems to be a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, Do Jer- you like that better than, like last week, you kind of were, it was 586, the destruction of the temple, right? Yes. And then it went, the the rededication of the temple, um, I can't remember the date, but... 516, yeah. 516. Exactly so that, 70 years. That was 70, so... That was your favorite last week. Now, is this a new favorite? Or? Well, well, I think this is interesting. I mean, it seems to be a direct fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25, hmm. uh, all the number of years that other nations will serve Babylon. So there is yet a third way oh, to do no. this. Yes, there is. And this is when you count uh, when the first uh, Jewish deportation to Babylon, to Babylon, the Babylon happened in uh, 607 B.C., to the arrival of Jews back in Jerusalem after the Edict of Cyrus. So for here you say, well, when did the first big wave of Jews go to um, Babylon? And uh, that we know from the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who reigned from 609 to 598 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And that's the siege where... Uh, are out of which Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego go to Babylon. Mm -hmm. So that's the first deportation. And then uh, the Edict of Cyrus that uh, allows people to return to their ancestral homelands, including the Jews to Jerusalem, that happens in 538 BC. But it probably takes them five months to get there, like it did to for Ezra mm-hmm. in a later generation as he travels between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's five months journey. So that puts their arrival not in uh, 538, but 537. 
And when you subtract 537 from 607, you get 70 years, precisely. You look amazed, Kirk. It's just a third way to do that. Well, I think you've really exhausted the 70-year study. And apparently I've exhausted your patience. <laughs> Let's take the whole thing. Anyway, it's just, it's just interesting, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, look at uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Uh, so it, uh, that verse seems to talk about it's the return of, of uh, God's people to that place particular place um so you know, and it's also the completion for babylon um is it the is it the people that have completed for babylon or is it the reign of babylon well it depends in, in jeremiah chapter 25 it seems to be the reign of babylon mm-hmm. in uh jeremiah 29 it seems to be the return of the people mm-hmm. and in zechariah chapter one it seems to be the rebuilding of the temple Right. So if you take those three incidents and you, you can get 70 years from the dates that make sense for that way of thinking about it. Well, it's layers of 70. It's like a three-layered cake, Kirk. I guess what I'm, I'm learning, it's, it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. And you'd rather have the three-layered. No matter layered, how you count it, it's 70. You would rather have the three-layered cake, I know. <laughs> With a scoop of vanilla ice cream. That sounds about great. It does. Well, we got to save ourselves from this and get into Let's the... Let's get uh, into our eco-confessional standard, shall we? Um, today, to, you found uh, a Westminster Confession, a larger catechism text that fits this? Yeah. Uh, when you think of contentment, when I think of contentment, I think of the last of the Ten Commandments, which is about not coveting, mm-hmm. right? And if we're coveting, if we're thinking about things we don't have, that's, that's not being content. That's not being open. When, when I think about what I don't have or when I fixate on that, I'm not practicing being content. I'm practicing being discontent. And the counsel of Scripture and the Ten Commandments is to be content. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is how it's described in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, question 46 is, which is the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is, quoting from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then question 147, what are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is, the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbors as that all our inward motions and affections touching them tend toward and further all that tend toward and further all that good which is theirs. Right. Accentuating the positive. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was really where I think Steve was focusing on that, you know, working as a church to be a welfare for others and welfare for our community and for our city um, to to be um, concerned with the welfare so that if, God forbid, our church were to disappear, uh, the neighbors would miss us, that they would grieve our not being here because we did so much in the community. Yeah, I'm meeting with two other 
pastors from Scottsdale just this week. They want to know more about how they can bless the city. Mm. So it's a very important concept, uh, not only for us, but I think for all Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the that same Westminster Larger Catechism, we have question 148, which is, what are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? If we're supposed to accentuate the positive, what are the negative that we need to eliminate, the negative things? And the answer given here are, the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying, and grieving at the good of our neighbors, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is theirs. So it's really, you know, stick to your own circle, what God has given you, your own home, your own circle of friends, your own family, and learn to take delight in that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Good counsel. Now, the eco-essential tenets, of course, also have a section where they're going over the 10th or the Ten Commandments. So, Kirk, what does it say about that Tenth Commandment about not coveting? It says we are to resist the pull of envy, greed, and acquisition, and instead cultivate a spirit of contentment with the gifts God has given us. Yeah. Good summary. Good summary. And uh, sometimes we do that in worship. We have that reminder after we pray over the offering that's taken, just Mm -hmm. saying, Lord, you're the person that gives us everything that we have, and we give back to you, and we do it gladly uh, because it's good for us. It Mm -hmm. is good for us to give back, give back to God, give back to our communities, give back to our families, uh, to be uh, of service to others. Mm -hmm. And God loves a cheerful giver. We were reminded of that a couple weeks ago. That's right. Well, each week we have a C.S. Lewis quote um, and you have two for us today. What a gift. Yes, I, uh, two passages from his letters to other people. Uh, we mentioned last week I'm very involved with a project looking at uh, very obscure letters of C.S. Lewis. So here's one from when he was a young man, uh, fresh, freshly uh, looking at serving in World War One, And he writes to his uh, friend back in Ireland, Arthur Greaves. He mm-hmm. says, nobody who gets enough food and clothing in a world where most are hungry and cold as any business talking about misery. Mm. So he realized, you know, I, I've got it better than a whole bunch of people. I've got no business complaining, uh, which is a, a very good statement for us all to remember. Was he serving in the war at that time? Is that uh, first war? Uh, first world war. I'm trying to think of the dates. I, I think this is around the time that he arrived at the, uh, uh, he was in France, I think, at this time. And, mm. Yeah. Wow. So pretty romantic. If not in France, about on his way there. And then another letter from when Lewis was uh, later uh, in life. This is from 1948. He's writing to somebody that, who had written to him who was uh, a Catholic priest in charge of uh, a Catholic community and later became beatified by uh, the Roman Catholic Church and may be declared a saint one day. Wow. Uh, This is uh, Don Giovanni Calabria. And uh, the only language they had in common was Latin. So they wrote to one another in Latin, which is kind of strange. Uh, So this is not from Latin, but from an English translation of what Lewis writes in Latin to uh, this uh, pen pal of his. He says, recently... 
Although the outward condition of my life has not changed for the better, it has pleased God to pour into my soul great tranquility. I may even say gaiety. I give thanks not without apprehension as one who keeps firmly in mind the salutary observation in the imitation of Christ. Remember in grace what you would be without grace. Would that we attain to everlasting constancy with no shadow of turning. Mm. So Lewis recalling um, the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, mm-hmm. a great um, classic of Christian devotional literature. Uh, the reminder that he is reminding to his friend, uh, he's speaking to his friend, remember in grace what you would be without grace. Mm. Yeah. Learn to be contented. Well, that is very good. I found, and I, I have, uh, you know, the interpretation series, the commentary. They also have right. a, um, a Bible study series. And uh, in this is a quote. And I thought, because we're talking about the exiles, we've talked a little bit about the waves of people and... Um, waves of exiles, right. Waves of exiles, yeah. So I thought this would be good. It says, um, and this is by uh, Celia Brewer Marshall. She has a book called A Guide Through the Old Testament. And uh, it was published uh, by Westminster John Knox Press in 1989. She says, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C., the inhabitants of Judah were split into three groups. One, those left behind in Judah... Two, those who fled to Egypt and lived in settlements along the Nile. Three, those who were deported by Nebuchadnezzar, roughly twelve to 16,000 people. This last group was brought to Babylon and resettled along the banks of the Chabar Canal. And I thought this was interesting because she says, in an effort to separate themselves from their captors, the exiles began practicing their religious observance, observances with renewed fervor. Having no temple, they gathered together in synagogues or assemblies and began writing on scrolls many of the oral traditions that had circulated for centuries. When the time came to return to the homeland, those who had learned from the past made their way to Jerusalem to build the city and renew their covenant with Yahweh. So it really becomes a time of spiritual renewal for the people. Um, Jeremiah's letter uh, to the exiles was, settle down, increase in numbers. And they not only increased in numbers, but the, the depth of their spiritual lives uh, got uh, enriched and uh, made more meaningful to that community. I'm wondering, though, when I read that one line about in, uh, you know, their effort to separate themselves. I mean, I wonder if that was prior to the letter or um, did they continue to kind of want to be separate from these Babylonians, as Pastor Steve said, the these godless Babylonians? Yeah, we, um, we, we don't like them. Why, why should we right. I mean, I be content here? I wonder if they did. Um, heed what he had written to seek the welfare of the city and i wonder if they they did try to flourish there and and have their communities flourish that's that's the question i have well it's a question we continue to have uh, if we're following christ 
uh, we know that our lives are going to be different from our neighbors in, in different ways. We'll have different priorities. Uh, but we are also called to love these neighbors mm-hmm. uh, um, who have different views of things and uh, different understandings and going through um, as much turmoil in their lives as uh, we ourselves go through from time to time. So how do we love the world mm-hmm. but not be, without becoming identical to the world? Yeah. Be in the world but not of the world. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. a real... And, and it seems like this study and Jeremiah is so, it's almost just, it seems like so relevant yeah. <laughs> for what we're facing in our world today. I mean, I think a lot of Christians look out and see that just this world is spinning out of control and they're, they, you know, there's, they, I don't agree with their morals and, and where, where people are going. Yeah, but I don't have to agree with somebody to make the determination I want to be kind to them. I want to bless them uh, as much as I'm able. I, I want to uh, be a force for good in my neighborhood and for my neighbors. Well, that's great, Bruce. Would you pray for us? I will. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be a blessing to others. Help us to uh, find ways to speak about the hope that we have following you not just to witness to that, to speak about that, but to care about people. Lord, forgive us for those times when we've concentrated on ourselves to the exclusion of caring about others. And we pray that we would be better at being reflections of that loving and caring spirit that we have experienced in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Lord, help us to be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk. Thank you.